Thanks for tuning in to the Think for Yourself podcast, hosted by Dr. Vikraman Sharmani. The podcast was started in early 2020 to share some of the ideas from his most recent book, Think for Yourself, Restoring Common Sense in the Age of Experts in Artificial Intelligence, which is available for purchase via Amazon, bookshop.org, and most other retailers. This episode is the audio portion of a webinar hosted by Dr. Mancharamani on October 9th with Rakesh Korana, Dean of Harvard College. The video replay of the discussion is available at www.mancharamani.com. So I am thrilled today to have uh, a dear friend and mentor join us, uh, Rakesh Korana. Rakesh is currently the Dean of Harvard College, and I had the pleasure of meeting Rakesh almost uh, 20 years ago, not quite 20 years ago, when I was a PhD student at MIT, uh, what they did with the PhD students is you had these little cubicles and the professors, of course, and Rakesh was a, uh, a, a younger professor, let's just say. <laughs> He's still young, but he was younger then. Much younger, uh, much younger. <laughs> uh, his office was right behind my cubicle or on the hall there. And so I really actually met him socially uh, because we were just running in similar circles, but I was studying something different, studying technology and innovation while he was uh, more focused on organizational behavior and um, and leadership. Um, and so, but we kept in touch. And, you know, after teaching at Yale for many years, uh, I reconnected with Rakesh and uh, managed to get uh, introduced to Harvard and, and, of course, now teaching at Harvard. But throughout those uh, 15 and 20 years, Rakesh and I have had conversations about education, uh, the future of education, the pressures on education, leadership in education, some of the uh, dynamics affecting liberal arts versus Votech and skills based education um, and really the future of education. So I am absolutely thrilled to have him here today for a discussion. Uh, as in terms of a, a little bit of a preview, next week I have Susan Helms uh, joining us for this webinar and Susan Helms is a retired three-star Air Force General who spent 221 days in space, including many of those days at the uh, International Space Station. She had the world record for the longest spacewalk for a while of almost nine hours. Um, and she ran Space Command for a period of time uh, when it was part of the Air Force. So I'm really looking forward to that. After that, we have Dr. David Katz, um, who uh, was at the Yale Med School uh, and has stepped down to start a business called Diet ID. He's trying to really change the world through nutrition. Uh, he's got a book out called How to Eat that he co-wrote with Mark Bittman. Uh, really fascinating read uh, and in fact has a whole bunch of uh, educational philosophy buried towards the appendix of that book. Really looking forward to that conversation as well. And then of course, uh, we had Annie Duke uh, earlier this week uh, and that replay is now available. Uh, so if, if you need a link to that, please don't hesitate to reach out. Happy to get you the link to the replay. Uh, that was a fun conversation about making decisions in the face of uncertainty. And of course, a, a 10 second promotional pitch here, uh, available for uh, $21.95 via Amazon <laughs> is this book, Think for Yourself. Um, and I, I do encourage you to purchase it. So with that said, and that backdrop, uh, let me again, Rakesh, thank you uh, for joining me. I'm really thrilled to have you. I'm glad to be here and thanks for inviting me. And um, what a great uh, series of uh, folks that you've uh, had and have coming up. So. I uh, hope that I am just sort of uh, the dog act uh, that will be following all these wonderful magicians that you've had. So 
No, no, no. So for those that don't know Rakesh's background, I'm not going to read his bio. It's long. It's very accomplished. Uh, it's all available online, etc. But he's not just the dean of Harvard College. He did spend time as a professor over at the uh, the business school. He's also associated with the sociology department. Uh, did his undergrad up at uh, Cornell uh, and his PhD at MIT, and then he taught at uh, sorry PhD at Harvard, and then he taught at MIT before coming back to Harvard. So that's the quick background. Um, so um, and again, I told you how I met him. So Rakesh, let's start with the personal story. You, like I, have parents that were refugees, effectively. How did that influence you? So maybe share some of that story and then describe how you think it influenced you. Well, um, you know, it's, uh, it's funny to think about it now, especially with all the discussion and dialogue about, you know, immigration in this country. And, but, you know, for uh, my parents, uh, they were originally uh, in Lahore, uh, Pakistan, um, what is today, uh, Pakistan. And um, during partition, uh, they ended up having to uh, essentially uh, go to what then became kind of uh, uh, India. So uh, to Punjab uh, uh, in Jalandhar, uh, which was then part of India because of their religion. Um, and, um, you know, I think those years in which, you know, it was massive dislocation for just you know, millions of people. Uh, my parents were, you know, without a home uh, and, um, um, you know, had, and basically their families had, had to start all over again. And, and I think that had a deep impression uh, on uh, me and my family. Um, my father, uh, you know, uh, uh, immigrated to the United States uh, in, uh, in that uh, early waves of immigration when, uh, the immigration laws were changed in the mid 1960s that moved away from uh, um, you know fixed counts, but rather to a more merit-based system, um, and uh, found himself in New York City, um, uh, and very quickly then brought my mother and my brother and I, and then we had a uh, we had another brother uh, born here, um, and I grew up in uh, first in um, Hoboken, New Jersey, and then Queens, New York, uh, in. Uh, in, in, you know, uh, which I just totally took for granted. I thought everybody was an immigrant because I grew up in Queens, you know. Uh, it was, uh, you know, it's one of the most diverse places uh, in the world. And even people who were, uh, my friends who were born in the United States, they were one generation or two generations uh, away from having uh, been immigrant families themselves. So, you know, it was just part of the ethos um, and had a very deep impression on me. And, you know, for my parents in particular, seeing, uh, you know, what uh, it happens when people uh, don't understand each other uh, um, and don't uh, respect each other's beliefs really taught my parents, you know, had an impact on my parents and they brought my brothers and I re really trying to understand different religious traditions and respect different religious traditions and uh, to understanding that nobody had a monopoly on the truth, um, that, uh, you know, that what we had in common uh, was so much and that our differences were our universality too and that both of those ideas could exist at the same time and i would say that that ethos kind of ran through kind of my upbringing yeah well it's funny as as we've talked about i have a very similar background in the sense that my parents also uh you know from what is now Pakistan into what is now India, from India to India, effectively. And then uh, I don't know if I ever told you this, but I was born in Queens. Uh, and 
and for the first five years of my life, I was in Queens, uh, and then uh, made it made my way over to Northern New Jersey, which is where I grew up. Uh, but yeah, very similar. So, all right, let's roll the clock forward. So that in uh, sort of education is an important element of your life, always has been. It sounds like, um, and I understand that. Uh, and so you're a hotshot business academic, but then you get an opportunity to go over to the college. That's a very different role. I mean, that's uh, sort of what inspired that. Uh, well, I didn't get into Harvard out of high school, so I figured one way to get to Harvard College was uh, to go become the dean. I'm just kidding. So it's easier to become the dean than it is to get into the college. Uh, <laughs> um, so, okay. uh, you know, I mean, I think it was a, a combination of things. It wasn't really, it was not planned um, um, at all. Um, I, uh, and, you know, love being a business school professor. Um, I love the teaching. I love the research. I continue to do research um, in that area. Um, but even when I was in graduate school, I had, uh, you know, been um, connected to the undergraduate community. I served as a non-resident tutor um, in one of Harvard's houses, the, one of the, you know, where, where students are the dormitories. And I, and I stayed connected to the undergraduate community in a variety of different ways. Um, uh, and, you know, whether it was just getting to know students um, and then later uh, being uh, kind of an uh, informal or sometimes even a formal advisor to some student organizations that were around the issues of leadership. Um, and, um, you know, I used to, my, my partner and I used to joke, wouldn't it be funny to be one of those people who got to be what were then called house masters. We now call them faculty deans, leaders in uh, one of the Harvard houses. Yeah. And one day we got a phone call asking if we'd be interested. Yeah. And uh, my response to the president uh, who, uh, who asked, uh, uh, who was then, uh, you know, um, was, I thought you had to be really old to do that. And her response was, you are getting old. And so uh, we had this fortunate opportunity to, in addition to me continuing as faculty member at, at the business school, being a faculty dean of one of the undergraduate houses at Harvard. And um, it was in that, a couple of years later that, you know, I was uh, asked if I would consider, you know, talking to some people about the dean's job at the college. And so again, a variety of sort of un planned uh, things. And uh, I found myself as the Dean of Harvard College, which has been just an extraordinary experience, yeah. um, getting to live and work uh -huh. uh, with the next generation. Sure. So this is a question I know a lot of people have. Uh, what does a Dean do? <laughs> I mean, I, I know teachers, yeah. members teach and do research, and we know administrators and sort of provosts manage money and do other things like that. And, but like, what does the Dean do? The Dean of the college. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, it's, uh, uh, you know, uh, a, a little bit of everything, but primarily my responsibility, uh, if I had to sort of define it without putting my tongue in cheek, I have a tongue in cheek response, uh, um, but is, is really the undergraduate uh, program. Um, and it consists of, uh, we really talk about it in terms of really carrying out the mission of Harvard College, uh, which is educating the citizens and citizen leaders for our society. And it's a mission the college actually has been doing for almost four centuries now and, and takes quite seriously uh, um, at an institution like Harvard. And we do that in our belief in the transformative power of a liberal arts and sciences education. And we talk about the intellectual transformation, helping our students develop an independent mind so they can learn to think for themselves, a lot like what 
your book. Uh, <laughs> uh, and thinking for yourself is hard. Yeah. Learning to think for yourself is hard. Um, and learning how to disagree without being disagreeable is hard. Um, being exposed to perspectives and points of view that are different from the ones you might have taken for granted is not a natural condition. And so we take that intellectual transformation really seriously. And then the second component of that is that we embed that in um, a very diverse living and learning experience where students study outside, alongside students who are different from them, who come from different walks of life and different identities, evolving identities, which we believe that deepens the intellectual transformation, but also sets the conditions for a social transformation, their understanding of what it means to be part of a civic community. Um, and that, you know, dialogue is not simply exchanging claims and counterclaims, where they learn to deepen their wells of empathy, to see behind each other's eyes, to hear from another's perspective. And then through those experiences, we hope our students begin, uh, we don't answer them for them, but we be, hope they begin to answer some questions for themselves. Who am I and who do I wanna be? How do I relate to others and what can I learn from others? What are my gifts and talents and how can I best use them to serve the world? So, you know, our team, you know, um, really focuses on executing and delivering on that mission and making sure that mission stays relevant um, in a way that resonates um, um, with today's uh, needs, uh, the society that our students will be going into and that we're constantly renewing that mission in a way that's, that basically ensures that Harvard stays relevant. Yeah, so Rakesh, one of the things that you raised here was sort of preparing students to, for civic life and sort of the world they operate in. Um, how do you think about, or how does Harvard think about that destination community? Is it America? Is it the world? Is it sort of all of us? Uh, sort of, I know there's, a, there's an embedded uh, sort of logic to who you're training. And I know there's alumni that have had constraints. Oh, we don't need Harvard to be 85% international. We need to maintain some degree of, um, you know, an American component, if you will. Uh, but at the same time, these are global citizens, right? Yeah, I, I think to me, that's kind of a false binary. Uh, you know, and, and, and um, you know, that we really recognize that as we see even in our world, that the, the local and the global are interconnected, uh, that time and space have really collapsed in, in so many different ways, uh, that our students are members of multiple communities. Yeah. And, um, um, and that we actually want to educate uh, citizens and citizen leaders who can actually, uh, you know, telescope up, but also go be, you, be very good with a microscope and magnifying glass and, and the local. And, and we want them to have a sense of obligation and responsibility in all of these communities um, and uh, appreciate that and, and do that with a sense of responsibility. And so, you know, the college, you know, uh, tries to, it, it, it draws students mostly from the United States. It's, it's distinct in that way from many of the other schools at Harvard. Um, and, you know, but we do bring students from around the world because we think that's how people learn. You can only learn to the extent that you are exposed to perspectives and points of views and ideas that you haven't already seen. And so that comparative perspective is actually part of the philosophy of education uh, that we have. Yep. Yeah. 
No, I think that's absolutely critical. Obviously, I fully agree with the logic of exposure to differences rather than, you know, confirmation of, uh, of yeah. similarities. So let's take a topic then, Rakesh, that, that made a lot of headlines earlier this year uh, with some of the racial tensions that raised. I mean, look, you're a sociologist. Uh, you've thought deeply about these issues. Um, and, but also it's affected the campus, right? I mean, uh, the, the reinvigoration of this quest for racial justice uh, and racial equality, uh, how did that change the uh, Harvard student community? Did it change sort of anything from your perspective of the, the feeling, the direction, the sort of Im Im the importance, if you will, of tolerance for different views, et cetera? Well, I think, you know, that quest for, equality and dignity and respect is, is not a thing just for the college or a university. That is, you know, the thing that attracted and brought my parents to believe that this was a better place for them to bring up their kids uh, than elsewhere, right? In places like where we had come from, the, you know, the, the cast or the last name you had or some actions that your forefathers had taken was your destiny. Yeah. And this promise of being able to literally create yourself and pursue your own identity project uh, really runs true to what I think is this country's ethos. Um, but I also think a, a, a desire, a, a, you know, kind of a very much a kind of human yearning. Um, and, you know, at a place like Harvard, which is so old, uh, you know, this was not a, it, it's history of, you know, uh, its history was not rooted in inclusion. Um, it's, it's, it's an institution that, uh, you know, was be here before the country um, uh, was even an, uh, uh, an idea. And um, as a result of that, um, you know, for most of its history, people like myself, uh, people who identify as women, uh, people who uh, were not Christian, uh, were not part of its story um, and we're not part of the place. And so, you know, what we have seen because I think, you know, our commitment to recognizing that veritas and truth can only come from different perspectives and points of view from a recognition that talent is everywhere but opportunities are not, we have a much more diverse set of students and faculty and staff than any time in the history of this institution's uh, uh, point. And when you, do, when you have people who are not just coming from the same handful of New England, you know, private school, uh, high schools as was part of, you know, significant part of Harvard's early history, you now have multivocality. You didn't have multivocality before. You didn't have people with different social histories and backgrounds and experiences. And so what you're seeing in colleges and universities is pluralism. You are seeing that. One of the challenges we face is that because our country is so stratified and because increasingly so many people live in places in which mostly they're surrounded by people who remind them of their favorite person themselves, they have not really been around a lot of difference. People may have had experiences being a minority, but that's not the same thing as really living in a diverse experience. And so what you're seeing in colleges and universities is the first time for many people uh, that they're really exposed to difference in perspective. And then developing the sort of cultural and intellectual and personal and social 
uh, uh, you know, uh, capacities to, to, to be in that kind of environment is exactly what we do. Um, and, and, um, you know, I, and I think that what we're seeing is that, you know, people who weren't seen, uh, uh, and didn't have a, a, you know, a chance to weigh in on who we are and where we're going, um, are expressing themselves. And there's a lot of people, the historical majority, majority, which was not used to being talked to yeah. and was not used to having to explain the why or, or do we do things this way? And I think that's part of what you're seeing. It's, it's, it's really the process of creation. Yeah. You know, there's been a lot of criticism over the years about sort of the elitism that gets produced from uh, some of the dynamics uh, with an elite education. I mean, Harvard is a scarce opportunity set, right? You can only have so many students come to Harvard every year. That's true of a lot of the elite institutions. Um, do you think the elite institutions are contributing to this sort of pressure that may exist uh, in terms of the haves, the have-nots, the populism that's sort of rising, uh, and you know, taking this to an extreme. Um, there have been times in history where intellectuals, elites, etc., have been the targets, right? I mean, is it conceivable that a Harvard degree could prove to be a liability under any circumstances? Well, you know, I think, you know, I would, I would like, I think we should disentangle this a little bit because uh, there's a lot packed in your question and I think it's really important to disentangle. So, you know, I've studied the sociology of elites yep. and, um, and have written quite critically uh, mm -hmm. about kind of elite structure in the United States and in particular in the area of the economy, um, um, especially to kind of growing income inequality uh, that was associated with CEO compensation packages, which were completely decoupled from any sort of performance and um, the way that that market works, uh, that it really wasn't a market, it was a facade, uh, largely through social networks and um, a kind of back scratching system of, um, of you know, essentially a cl systemic closure. Yeah. Um, and that that really needs to be challenged and um, because it doesn't serve the organizations well, it doesn't serve meritocracy well, it doesn't serve social mobility well, and ultimately doesn't serve the organizations having the right people in the right jobs well. So, you know, I think that to me is a really important um, area. Now, I think what's happened with, you know, you know elite colleges, and I, I should go, I'm gonna go back to my biography a little bit, yeah. is, you know, I grew up in New York, I went to public schools, and um, I transferred to Cornell, actually, from a public university. So I transferred from SUNY Binghamton uh, okay. to Cornell. So, you know, I've had different exposures to, you know, not as much as many other people. And I don't want to claim that I don't, you know, I can't claim other people's understanding. So at least from my experience, you know, there, first of all, I think the idea that somehow, you know, going into a selector college, College, which is really difficult and stuff to get into, but somehow that that's an indicator of intrinsic talent or worth is, I think, not a useful one. The kind of anticipatory socialization, the so much has to go right in your life in order to even have this, you know, capacities to, uh, you know, be able to, uh, you know, go through school in a way that's relatively uninterrupted. Um, you know, to be in a stable enough situation where people get to, your teachers get to know you well enough to write recommendations, where your families may have resources 
uh, that allow you to have summer enrichment programs and all, you know, to, to develop your uh, interest in music or whatever it is, uh, sports or, and, and, and all of that kind of feeds into kind of this process that I think needs to be interrogated um, um, and, 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 you know, uh, examined because, and, and I think, you know, not just selective schools, all schools, but selective schools have particular responsibility for not being systems that largely reproduce, you know, uh, uh, the existing structures, but rather really are the systems by which you can bring talent from anywhere and, and put people from opportunity. And there's a lot that the institution has done, uh, especially around financial aid, about, you know, uh, recruiting uh, uh, students from uh, high schools where they've never sent people to uh, a place like Harvard. The number, the percentages that we have of that are really quite, you know, good. And, and in fact, in many cases, we're often much more affordable than even the local public university. We don't have loans, et cetera, or this flagship public university. So, so I think, but I think at the same time, you know, what we do have to recognize is that when a society gets so focused on where you went to school, and if primarily school is more than just an intellectual experience, but also it bring, gives people social networks, yep. uh, gives people cultural capital. Um, I, I, th I think that has to be, you know, considered and, 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 and challenged. Uh, those things can't be shorthand for looking at the intrinsic quality of a person. And I think to me, the, it's really important that we not see that. And similarly, I would say to, uh, you know, uh, some of the smartest people I ever met in yeah. elementary, middle school. Like I remember these folks, like these students, you know, uh, these are my friends, you know, who could like, when the Rubik's Cube first came out, I remember, I'm not going to say this person's name. I remember a student, just a, a guy who's so brilliant at math. We were in seventh grade. He looked at it and he's like, oh, I get it. And like, you know, two minutes later had finished it, had never seen it before. There was no YouTube videos on how to do. Yeah. Um, but later that person's family ran into some difficulties, et cetera. And, you know, they went to college. I hope they're doing fine and stuff. So, you know, to me, this idea that there's some kind of correlation and that this system is, you know, skimming, I just don't think that's an accurate assumption. We also know there's a lot of research to support that. We know there's a lot of um, research that shows that uh, that Caroline Hoxby's work has shown that some of the most talented students in our nation don't even think that they can get into a selective school or that it's out of their reach because they don't understand the financial aid. It's too complicated. It sort of looks like pharmaceutical pricing to them. And so we have a lot of work to do to make sure that we live up to the promise of being a place where students you know, who, who are desired here. That also said is we need a lot more focus on higher education more broadly. There's gotta be a lot of different types of, you know, uh, higher education institutions for different types of interests and talent. Um, to me, that's just really critical. And, and the, I think it's unhealthy to focus on a handful of schools. Sure. Let me twist the, the conversation a little bit, Rakesh, to another area of your research that ties on this sort of idea of elite and sort of, uh, you know, uh, social network value of education, et cetera. And I see a lot of questions coming in. I'll, I'll, oh, I haven't opened up the chat function. Should I do oh, that? No, no, I'll, no, let no, you guide me. I'll let you guide me. I won't do that. There's, there's a lot of them there. So let okay. me come back to that later. I see literally dozens and dozens. Uh, but let's talk about the MBA. 
I mean, uh, here's a degree that some people say is dying. Um, and in fact, I think you were early on suggesting uh, in some of your research that the MBA may get commoditized away, may be sort of, uh, you know, the, the value may be called into question um, and that the long-term value of business education in that master's degree sense uh, may prove suspect. Um, and so, you know, if you had a 24-year-old hotshot that comes to you and says, uh, Dean Carana, I wanna, I'm thinking about an MBA, what's your guidance? So, you know, I think, you know, that, that, that academic work, uh, you know, that I focused on was really, you know, both trying to understand the, the reason that business schools were founded in the first place. Why were they in universities? Uh, because in my research, I had found that actually there used to be a lot of business schools in this country in the late 19th century, but they were in the for-profit market. They were not in universities. And then they migrated into universities. And I was really interested in under what kind of notion. And the notion was that management was a profession. Um, and could become a profession. And so it was a kind of notion of a professionalization project. Um, it was a few decades later than the medical school migration had happened and the law school migration, but even those fields had largely increasingly migrated into the research yeah. university. Um, you know, there was sort of four components of what makes a profession. One is that there's a body of knowledge that you need to master um, and that it's esoteric knowledge. It's not easily mastered. It's not an algorithm. It requires the application of judgment. So it's a combination of both facts and a kind of changing body of knowledge that requires the application of judgment. The second aspect of a profession is that it's the capacity to self-regulate, that there's an ethos among the profession through professional associations to really sort of manage oneself. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and the orientation of a professional is toward the client and the ends that one is serving. So medicine seeks to serve health. And so the interests of the patient have to outweigh the interests of the self-interest of the physician. Toward law, it's toward justice. And so the interests of the client have to outweigh. And the third is that you are also certifying that knowledge, that you actually, it, you're not just running through diploma mills, you actually certify that the person has mastered this knowledge and requires continual education actually over time um, you know, to advance that knowledge. And then, and, and then the fourth, thing, which I think, you know, is, is one that also we don't spend a lot of time, is that thinking about the sort of ethical components um, and the constant dialogue and debate that, that goes on within a profession among its practitioners. Um, of, um, and, you know, I tried to point out that that was the framework under which business schools came to be found in universities. And I think what we're seeing now is that, you know, a couple of those aspects never really, you know, they either you know, haven't been renewed or refreshed or never really got constructed. I'll just point out two. One is the knowledge itself, the functional knowledge of business, accounting, finance, yep. organizational behavior, operations, management, all of those things has increasingly become commodified. And, and as a result, one argument that I make is that it's commodified because it largely relies too much on disciplines like economics and sociology and political science and psychology without recognizing the relevance of the managerial problems in which it's confronting. And, and the, the way that the incentive system is and the promotion system is it tends to reward disciplinary contributions and not as much contributions toward actually advancing management knowledge. But the second thing is, is that the, the, the notion of management as a profession, as the primary ethos of a, of a manager is, mm -hmm. is not toward maximizing shareholder value, but rather actually maximizing the value of society. 
And one of the arguments that I make uh, is that even the, to the extent that the knowledge that did exist in combination with the ethos in business education, it became more about extracting value than about creating value. And the argument I was making, and it was a you know, strange time to be making the argument because business schools at the time seemed to be booming, um, was that this was actually going to lead to kind of the delegitimation of business education over time because uh, you couldn't simply be a finishing school where people largely develop social networks yep. and those were an end in themselves and not embed that with the other sort of aspects of what it meant to be professional, which I think is, you know, where medicine and law and some of the sort of, uh, you know, proto-professions kind of can, can still yep. be. Yep. Yeah. So yes or no, go get an MBA. <laughs> so I think I would say it depends. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm not gonna, uh, again, I, I, it's hard for me to see the world in a binary. I think it depends. I think you can get a very, you know, if you don't have a lot of knowledge about basic business and stuff, uh, it can be quite helpful. I think business schools also provide a holding period for one to do some serious self-reflection. I think in a really good pro place, you could actually begin to answer those questions for yourselves. Who am I? Why am I doing what I do? What motivates me? Is it some kind of insecurity that I have? Um, you yeah. know, how can I be a, a better leader for other people? Um, yeah. uh, I wish it had these other aspects, to be honest, as well, uh, because I do think that would not only strengthen the um, uh, education, but I think it would strengthen the institution of business education. Got it. Got it. All right. I understand. Um, so I want to switch gears. Ask a, uh, Well, let's ask a fun question first. Uh, Rakesh. What's your uh, favorite movie? Oops. Uh, favorite, favorite movie. Um, I have a couple of them, uh, but I would definitely have to say like One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest uh, um, uh, with Jack Nicholson. Um, I also love movies like, you know, these kind of epic intergenerational movies like Legends of the Fall, yeah. you know, um, okay. uh, V for Vendetta. Uh, I have a, a Jason Bourne. I love those kinds of movies. That comes all from my dad. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, you know, my dad, you know, when, when, uh, you know, when he first took us to see Star Wars, I mean, he must've taken us like five times and yeah. he was trying to basically, you know, you know, cause he was so skeptical of kind of organized religion. He basically tried to raise us as Jedis. Like he really tried to sort of <laughs> that ethos and, and, and really sort of tried to connect it to kind of his way of looking at the world. So I have to say those, those Star Wars movies, have yep. a special place for me, including the prequels. Uh, but what can I say? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, they were different orders, right? Go back to one. Um, how about uh, favorite novel? Uh, favorite novel, Moby Dick. Just obsession, the, the, the dangers of obsession. And because I think I see, and, and the kind of slow lunacy yeah, that can emerge when you become really just focused on one thing and fixated. And maybe I think for me, I have to be wary of that. Um, I can go down a lot of rabbit holes myself. Yep. And for me, that kind of madness, but also the fact that people were just following oh. him without <laughs> and yeah. blindly into the abyss yep. is something that I, I mean, you know, when I first read the book, I didn't appreciate it in high school. You have to read it. But then I read it again. And boy, it's, I have to say, it's one of my favorite. Excellent. Um, there are a ton of questions, right? So I'm going to try to put these into a couple buckets. 
Um, the first one is really about COVID, the disruption to de the delivery of education, mental mm -hmm. health of students, sort of how do you as a dean think about these dynamics for uh, the impact this will have? Are, is there a certain generate, is this generation of students going to be permanently scarred effectively or, you know, branded with this experience in a way that changes who they are and how they think? Mm -hmm. uh, so, so that's one. And relating to that, um, I think has to do with, uh, you know, the, the mental health of, and the, the ability to teach critical thinking in this remote, non- as interactive way? Yeah, yeah, those are great questions. Um, I mean, I think all I have are impressions yeah, um, and kind of theory and history to rely on. Um, so it's hard to sort of know how it's gonna unfold in the future. Yep. You know, I, I think combining COVID with, as we, you know, the, the reckoning on racial uh, uh, justice with the reckonings around the economic dislocations and the amplification of inequalities, um, the, the impact that's having disproportionately on gender uh, and, and uh, race, and um, but also you know uh, uh, class. I think these things are uh, significant. Um, you know, history does suggest that things like plagues and these kind of disruptive events accelerate historical processes. Yep. Um, and so you know. And those things that we tend to overestimate their impact in the short term and underestimate their impact in the long term. So, you know, for example, education would be an example where, you know, I think the, 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 the rapid shift and pivot that we had to make last spring toward remote education and, you know, quickly being able to deliver, uh, you know, and continue academic progress uh, through online and, you know, just reimagining different types of assignments and stuff. Um, that is going to uh, have a long tail. Um, it's going to, um, and, and I think, you know, what we saw, my colleague uh, Bharat Anand really did, a, for me, a very good analogy. You know, what we saw last spring, for example, was when, you know, the internet and the web first came out, what you saw the first versions of newspapers were basically just PDFs of the printed page. But today, you know, you know, totally. papers very interactive, et cetera. And, you know, what I'm seeing is this acceleration in many ways of that transition with uh, uh, pedagogy. Um, uh, the courses that our faculty kind of reimagined uh, over the summer, the assignments, the, the kind of engagement that they're able to now elicit from students um, is pretty significant um, and impressive. Um, obviously, there's unevenness. Um, and I think, you know, there's a lot of practice-based pedagogy, which, you know, is really critical, which we are not currently able to do because of the uh, uh, virus, um, but it does impact. What, yep. what impact will it have on, on students? Um, you know, I think, you know, I, I sometimes hear the story that, you know, maybe it will, you know, have this, you know, you use the word scar and, you know, kind of, uh, you know, that kind of damage. And, and there's some really interesting research, you know, in, 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 in kind of the field in the sociology of leadership. And, and, and I don't think we have good answers, but, you know, one of the questions we ask ourselves is, how is it that the same event can impact people so differentially? So for some people, a, a real setback in their life, a real kind of, you know, rupture could be, you know, personal, but it could also be something as systemic as we've seen here with COVID-19 or economic disruption like we saw with the Great Depression or things like World War II. Why is it for some people that that 
ends up becoming the way they define their life and 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 it becomes a, a thing that they have a hard time getting over um they they uh it, it becomes you know it, it's the reason why they don't find joy or the reason why um you know things aren't working out um or they're they don't want to engage yeah. and for other folks that same event often results in the deepening of wells of empathy. Yeah. It causes them to say, I want to devote my life to something bigger than myself. I want to be part of something bigger than myself. I realize that I don't control everything. Yeah. I want to be in community. I want to make my life, you know, something else. And I want to use it to reinvent, to literally re-give birth. Sure. And I don't think we fully understand what leads to one or the other, but I can think about a set of conditions and educational conditions that make it more likely that people might move in one direction or the other. Sense of social support, a sense of sense-making, a sense of understanding, putting things that are happening to you in historical context, that this is not the first time. Helping students see in their own lives when they've overcome difficulties. And that gives them a sense of hope and possibility and imagining alternative futures. So I think the work that educators and teachers have to do right now is really think about how we can set those conditions. I know there's a lot of research to think about what does it mean to graduate into a recession, and there's sure. a lot of research, you know, I'm gonna put that aside. Uh, but, you know, part of what I would say is that I feel a, a, an ethical responsibility about really understanding how we set the conditions. You can't guarantee the outcome, but set the conditions so that our students and our future generations can really understand it and make meaning. And this is a very resilient generation. This is, many of these students were born in the post 9-11. Climate change has been an existential threat. Um, school shootings, all of these things. I mean, do you know how, what it means to kind of be constantly confronted with that and to live in a world where there's no role models, your, 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 your national figures have not been, you know, people who you can say, I want to be like them more often than not. Yeah. And I actually, you know, think incredibly highly of this generation. Um, and, and they're so open-minded and um, uh, in so many different ways. There's obviously work to do. We're not, none of us are as open-minded as we think. We're right. quick to judge. Uh, but I, I, when I look into the eyes of these students and I, look, I feel like I'm looking into a time machine, which is like the eyes of the future, I'm, I'm actually quite optimistic. Yeah, interesting. Um, that's great. Uh, so Rakesh, I have like six questions that I would put into one bucket and I'll read from some of them. I put it into the bucket of geopolitics impacting the environment in which education is delivered. Mm -hmm. And so I'll, I'll read one of them because I think it captures the essence of it. So Harvard accepted Xi Jinping's daughter and even allowed her to attend the school under a false identity. I don't know if that's true. Uh, does that run counter to the U.S. national interest? Is it too much to ask for Harvard to cut ties with authoritarian regimes? Relating to that, um, you know, uh, obviously, while continuing to educate Chinese Americans, Chinese nationals, what are the implications about, uh, you know, civil military fusion in China? And are we enabling and giving sort of uh, capacities, if you will, for a geostrategic rivalry to come back. I mean, there's been some um, interactions between the Chinese military and faculty in the Boston area, we'll leave it at that, um, that may have highlighted this issue. So uh, let me pause there and let you reflect on that and sort of, and then we can come back to some of the mm -hmm. other angles there. Yeah, 
So, you know, this is not an area of my expertise. Um, so I've just put, you know, um, but I'll, I'll share. So, you know, I think we obviously, I feel a strong responsibility in this institution toward this nation and its well-being. I think we're a nonprofit institution that um, has a responsibility to, a significant responsibility, and I feel personal responsibility to the United States and its long-term well-being and prosperity and security. So I think that's, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I would like to make a distinction between that and I think why uh, our universities have thrived and particularly why our colleges have thrived. Because I think we have been a sort of place that attracts talent uh, from around the world. And, um, and uh, as I said, I think part of how we advance our humanities, our social sciences, our, our natural sciences is through the exposure of different perspectives and points of view. And, you know, I, I hope that we can do both be responsible and secure and do all the things that we need to do and also recognize that 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 when people learn from each other and when they see each other in human terms that that's a great benefit and i think when our students as undergraduates are coming most of what you know governments are often doing you know they, they have to do what they do but they're often perpetuating certain strategic interests mm -hmm. that have to do with the existence of the nation state etc but those are not the only interests that we have, I think, as a society. I think we do also have a society of developing mutual understanding. I think we do have as a society a development of shared experiences, seeing behind each other's eyes to understand that there's different ways of living, um, to respect those differences, um, but also to know when those differences are things that we should debate and challenge um, and ask people, why do you decide to do it that way? On what rationale can you hang back? even if you don't disagree. One of the things that I think is so important is even, especially when you disagree with someone, you should be able to restate their argument sure. better than they could. You should be actually able to identify the strongest parts of their argument, and yeah. then identify the weakest parts and be able to debate and discuss them. And on the other side, you should be able to hear that. That people should be able to listen with the same intensity they wanna be heard. And then you should be able to reflect and not see what you believe as dogma and ideology. I think for me, one of the most important things that we teach is our students to know when they are being exposed to doxa and dogma and closed systems of thinking. And I think that our educational system, our philosophy, you can't not read in the liberal arts and sciences or engage with a form, type of music or engage with a literary object or engage simply with a person and understanding comparative political traditions without also recognizing that nobody has it right. And we really benefit from that. So maybe that's naive, yep. but my understanding is that, and I've heard enough anecdotes that when we had during the Cold War, war rivalries, um, yep. that, that, that the relationships and the understandings that developed during through our educational systems and through the scientific communities of interchange and exchange actually contributed to the preconditions that ended the cold war yep so yeah. i think we can think about this in a long-term perspective as well well relating to that rakesh there's also this idea that you know this great power rivalry sort of congeals this civic instinct if you will right and so th there's a question here that sort of says civic engagement appears to be near an all-time low in America, but it's moving 
towards a national crisis and maybe great power war that could lead to a renewal of society and possibly a rebuilding of these institutions. And, you know, how can Harvard encourage students to advance the idea of civic reconstruction? How do we generate more JFKs and RFKs who can revive American exceptionalism on the global stage while standing firm against this new axis of autocrats is the exact question. I think, I think that's exactly, I think there's nothing more than autocrats are afraid of is are people who can think for themselves. I, I, I literally think there's nothing more dangerous to an autocrat than somebody who can think for themselves. Yeah. And in fact, what's also part of, and Hannah Arendt made this point, part of the way autocracy and totalitarianism succeeds is through social isolation. By yep. not letting people know that there's other people who can think different and are connected to different types of people. So if we're really taking that as the object, yep. then I think our strategy should be aligned uh, toward that because I think the history has shown um, and you know, deep political uh, uh, philosophy uh, has theorized about why that it's very hard to sustain a closed system and maintain uh, uh, you know, democracy at the same time, just as it's really hard to have an open system and maintain autocracy at the same time. In fact, I would say that, you know, for me, part of what we have to do is that we do have an ethos. And I think that ethos is around pluralism. I think it's the ethos around which this, you know, e pluribus unum that this country was founded on, which is through our diversity is our strength. And yeah. that we should feel confident in. And it's, a, it's an idea that we haven't fully realized, but it's guided us for, you know, we're gonna be coming up to 275, three, you know, 275, uh, 250 years as a, as a country. Um, you know, we're gonna be coming up to our 400 years as an institution. I think that idea is important because I think it has demonstrated that if we're playing the long game here, it actually works. Yep. Yeah, well, I just finished rereading 1984 and sort of the control of information and sort of how, you know, siloization and sort of disconnecting others from different viewpoints and sort of Big Brother's watching and eventually the ending of I've grown to love Big Brother, so to say, uh, and that there's a version of the truth that's imposed rather than you know, determined um, is, is really, really, really uh, interesting uh, to hear you comment on it in that light. All right, let me, uh, let me change directions here, uh, Rakesh, and ask uh, something that comes from, uh, I got, obviously some parents are interested in uh, what advice you might give to some of the younger kids out there. So uh, if you had a nine-year-old, I happen to have a nine-year-old, um, is it important to specialize or be br or broader, more general? Obviously, uh, a nine-year-old still has years before thinking about college, so maybe it's not specifically for the college idea. But you know, there's this there's this debate between breadth and depth, and you know, there's back when I applied to college, well-rounded individuals were sought and could get in. I mean, I'm not sure I would get into Yale today because I'm not as spiky as I think some of them now seek, which is you can be rounded, but you gotta be really good at something. Um, any thoughts on that that you would give to parents of younger kids? Well, I would tell parents of younger kids, don't have your kids worry about getting into college, just like right from the start. And, and where your kids go to college is not a validation of your parenting. My dad just passed away a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Um, he went to uni, uh, City University of New York, where he got his MBA. And uh, he went to a small local college in India. He was the first person in his family to go to college. 
Mm -hmm. My mom, well, college in India and then went to CUNY also and uh, for her master's degrees. None of my dad's parents were illiterate. Mm -hmm. And they were decent people. And I would put their decency up against a lot of people with a lot of credentials on the wall. Yeah. And some of the most hardworking people I know are working two, three, four jobs sometimes so that their kids could have a better life. And for me, I would want to sort of think about, you know, I have three kids and I know the pressures. So I have, you know, two kids who uh, are in college, one who recently graduated college and, you know, and, and is in medical school. I'm very proud of all my kids. And I know, you know, everybody can say, well, it's so easy to, and I've made mistakes in raising them. I think sometimes in cases emphasizing too much certain things, but I think the thing that I've realized is that part of what our job as a parent is to set the conditions for this person to become their own person, to be capable of having healthy emotional relationships, to be able to learn how to think, to be able to learn for oneself, to love learning as an end in itself, um, to recognize that actually, you know, where you go to college, it's, I encourage people to go to college precisely because I think it liberates the mind. Um, and it can also help you get a job. Um, and it does make a difference in the socioeconomic kind of right now, given the skills and credentialing and all that stuff. So I don't want to be naive about it. Yeah. I, th I think we do our, our young people disservice if we get them focused on this as an end. I meet too many students who are burned out. Yeah. Um, and, and once they got into their selective school and they've lost the kind of drive about and the love of learning. And so I think to me, those are the kinds of things. Now, when it comes to breath in general, I don't, I think, you know, I, I think of this very just like kind of logically, unless you know the future, um, it's really, uh, you know, it's good to learn how to learn. My, when my dad first came to this country, uh, you know, somebody was told him, he goes, you should learn Fortran. And then another person said, you should learn COBOL. These are like computer programming languages for people who don't know. Yeah. And then somebody else told my dad, you should learn how to learn. <laughs> He's like, that makes sense to me. And, you know, because who does Fortran now? Who does COBOL now? I mean, I, I know there's still some government systems that do run on that. Um, but, you know, it's, um, you have to prepare people to, to sort of for a world that's rapidly changing and for the, them to adapt themselves to that world. So, and then shape it. So that, that's kind of the ethos. And so I really think strong foundational skills. I do think it's really important to not, engage in magical thinking. So I do think technology is really important. So you should understand what's going on with this thing, right? Because so it doesn't look like, oh, there's magic. I wonder how this coconut works and this coconut controls the weather. And like, no, there, there's, you know, a binary system. It's calculating zeros and ones, which can get translated into tables. Those tables can then be, you know, codified as letters and words. There's, you know, loops of learning that can go on, iterations, it can store things, it stores it in the following way, it uses a magnetic technology, you know, like, yeah. it's good to understand those things. So I would definitely emphasize that understanding science is really important. And the logic of science is really important. And then the second thing is, I think, the interpretive arts. I think this is something my parents didn't emphasize as much, other than through kind of cultural and religious kind of traditions. But understanding a true humanitarian education, a true humanist education, um, and being able to read text closely to discern meaning, um, to uh, be able to interpret, um, to be able to try to understand what somebody is saying versus what they're really saying. And yeah. I think me, I would really emphasize that component. I know that 
you, your experience at Yale, uh, you worked uh, uh, and were, had a mentor who was, you know, one of the inventors of EQ. Um, and so I would definitely say that's a really important thing. Yeah, no, definitely. It's interesting, Rakesh. I mean, my book, uh, Think for Yourself, I dedicate to my children uh, saying, may they think for themselves. Uh, that's sort of something I really do wish for them in life. And then, you know, they're at an age now where sometimes I wish they didn't think for themselves. They're sort of just listen, listen to what your father's saying and just do this rather than think for yourself. But uh, I, I do think that makes a lot of sense. So there's one follow-up question that uh, I do think is worth asking here, Rakesh. Uh, um, when you talked about sort of the sort of, you know, the openness of different societies, hostile regimes, et cetera, and sort of promoting that. And so the follow-up question is, does that mean we should limit the subjects that students from hostile regimes can study? You know, let them study politics or philosophy, but not applied science. You know, again, I'm not an expert in this area. There's obviously things that, you know, uh, people need to think about. Again, I believe in the importance of security and you know and which projects and things like that there's a lot of important work and thinking that needs to go on there uh, and i believe is going on there um i i don't know i, I again i maybe this is me uh, and i tend to be somebody who's skeptical of just any type of again uh, you know when, even even you know part of what I often try to teach my students, it's not the things we think, but the things that think us. Hmm. And the first purpose is to basically to think around the things that are making you think the way that somebody wants you to think and wants you to believe. And one of the things that I really try to ask people is, you know, what do you think? Why do you think it? And that kind of thing is important to me. So when I, even in a question that's being asked and I respectfully receive those questions, I am an individual who just, maybe this being an academic, automatically just questions authority, uh, questions the source, uh, wants to know why, what's the supportive evidence? What's the reason? What's the rationale? Is there corroborating evidence? Um, and I, as a, you know, social scientists understand, and I teach this stuff. I understand the nation state project. I understand the political project. I understand, I've read, you know, uh, Theta Scotchpole on the interests of the state. And, you know, like I'm, you know, so maybe I'm the wrong person to answer these questions because I get, I, these questions just elicit a lot of questions from me, um, you know, uh, and, and, um, and, you know, and then I like to think about alternatives um, other than, you know, yes, no's, uh, uh, you know, uh, friend, not friend can we sort of, you know, complexify this? Can we, can we sort of talk about this, you know, what contingencies we're talking about, what conditions? Um, that under can, these conditions, this, under that condition, this, yeah. sort of when does it make sense, when doesn't it? That's right, and, 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 and nuance, right? And, and, and I have to be honest, this is really challenging in this world right now. In a world of Twitter, um, in a world of, you know, fast uh, uh, attribution um, um, and, you know, it, it, it's very challenging to academics and scholarship because we deal with contingencies, nuance. We recognize that things that we once believed to be absolutely true turn out to be more contingent and maybe even false. Yeah. Right? And so that humility is kind of what we're trying to inject in our learning, yeah. that the truth is hard. And, and in fact, for most of human society, 
people have preferred a comfortable lie over an uncomfortable truth. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Rakesh, we're basically out of time. I've got dozens of questions more here, mm-hmm. uh, but I'm going to let you have the last word. And I think the, the the question that I would pose and see if there's any advice or guidance you would give to all of us for, uh, you know, interfacing with this inner, this world, which is filled with this, you know, this social media dynamic with the polarization, which, you know, these, the, the sort of negativity, which is overcoming a lot of us, you know, I'm always uh, thrilled to, to reflect on Steven Pinker's work and sort of the, the, actually we've, we're getting better. There's, there's a, there's an optimism here underneath some of this negativity that surrounds us, but maybe a, a whether it's a suggested uh, course of action, a suggested book, a suggested, uh, something um what do you leave us with you know again not to personalize this too much but you know uh don't take for granted the people in your lives um just you know my dad passing away and um recognizing that we're not alone um it can feel that way especially now with our social distancing um that it's okay to feel bad um, um, but it's better to feel bad together than it yeah. is to feel bad by yourself. Uh, if you can find someone and if anybody out there needs somebody to talk to or just wants to vent, I welcome an email, um, uh, and, um, or a conversation. I'll try to follow up. Um, um, mm-hmm. but I just think we're not alone. And we have to remember that part of the object of totalitarianism is to make you feel alone. Yeah going back to your 1984 metaphor. Yeah, well, I will uh, just to acknowledge uh, Rakesh, uh, again, I, we've talked about this before, but my deepest condolences on your father's passing, but the, uh, the obituary, which I did read, I thought had an absolutely fabulous ending uh, to it in terms of, uh, you know, in lieu of donations or flowers, show respect to people that are different so welcome those from other places uh, with open arms, et cetera. I mean, it sort of captured the essence of it in a way that very personal for me, but very gratifying to read. So, uh, so again, my condolences, but thank you. Thank you for the time today. Thank you for uh, your friendship and mentorship uh, on a personal basis. Uh, really, uh, I feel lucky to have you uh, in my life, Rakesh. So thank you. Well, uh, thank you for inviting me. And I hope this wasn't a waste of... Uh your time. No, uh, not at all. It's great. Tune in uh, uh, today. So um, Semper Core and Semper Veritas. Thanks for taking the time to listen to this episode of the Think for Yourself podcast hosted by Dr. Vikram Mancharamani. As a reminder, the video replay of today's episode is available at www.mansharamani.com. Finally, if you've not already done so, we encourage you to subscribe to the Think for Yourself podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, or Spotify. Thank you.